Well, if you're visiting with us this morning, we're so glad that you're here. And one of the things that we do at Gateway is we work our way through books of the Bible. And we are um, presently working our way through the book of Exodus. And Exodus is such a critical book in the, uh, the unfolding of God's redemptive plan. And uh, it's often a neglected book, but we have found it to be extremely helpful and uh, extremely relevant for where we are today and what we're going through. And so we invite you to join with us. We're at Exodus chapter 8, and I want to encourage you to get your Bibles. I know you've been sitting for a while, so I would encourage you to stand and uh, stretch your legs as we read, but also follow along and give attention to God's Word here. Exodus chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go in to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs and shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord shall come upon you and your people. Sorry, let me continue on here. Verse 5. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with, all, with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, tomorrow, Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your and uh, your servants and your people They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs, as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses and courtyards and in the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart, and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. Pharaoh's heart was hardened, not listened to them 
as the Lord had said. Lord, we ask that you give us wisdom today to consider your word afresh. Lord, this is such a familiar passage of Scripture. Uh, Lord, a place that, that many of us uh, grew up learning this story in Sunday school and on flannel graph charts or in storybooks that we colored. And Lord, we may, we may know the story, but Lord, we may not understand the important aspects of the story that help us to see how glorious you are. So Lord, uh, would you this morning um, teach us and, and Lord, give us what we need and Lord, help us to see uh, our need to be conformed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Allow me to be your mouthpiece and that what you desire to come through this morning will, would be what takes place. We ask this, Lord, in your precious holy name. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but I like art. Now, I'm not kind of an art buff. I don't run around going to art galleries all the time, but every once in a while, um, I can appreciate some good art. And in the center of the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, there is the very famous painting by Michelangelo called The Creation of Adam. You may have seen pictures of this. It lies at the focal point of, of all of Michelangelo's uh, fresco that is on that ceiling, and it depicts uh, a strong, majestic God reaching down to a kind of a lazy, lethargic Adam with his hand. And the, the point of this is to say that this is God breathing life into his soul. There is a touch that comes from God to Adam to give him life. Now, as we come to our text today, we'll notice that the words the Egyptian magicians use to describe kind of the fact that they've come to the end of the rope and they recognize there's something greater going on, say, this must be the finger of God. See, but this is theme, this theme of the finger of God is not just about their recognition. It is actually running through the whole text with what God is doing uh, with the Egyptian people through these plagues. They're all demonstrations of the majesty and the power of the finger of God. And we should do well this morning, friends, to look at this text with awe and to see the mighty hand of God and pay attention to the finger of God. Not just in this text, but even as you live your lives for His glory, His finger is everywhere at work. And we're going to look at this text basically by following the two plagues that are listed for us here. So we'll beginning uh, this morning by looking at the frogs, the frogs, the plague of the frogs. And one of the things here to note is this one, the emphasis here is that the frogs will come out of the water. The one that we'll look at next, the gnats, coming from the dust of the earth. And there's a sense in which here God is saying to Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt that God is sovereign over the water and he's sovereign over the land. Now here we're going to note, first of all, that God's power is revealed. It's revealed, first of all, over Pharaoh. Notice verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. 
And if you remember, this is the same message that Pharaoh was to take, or Moses was to take to Pharaoh every time he went in to see him. He was to say, God is saying, let my people go. And it's a reminder, and we said it last week, but we say it again, God's demands don't change. He expects us to conform to him. He doesn't conform to us. Look at verse 2 now. But if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. As I mentioned last week, the word plague is the Hebrew word um, negap, which means to strike. And the idea here is that this is a, a striking uh, of a judgment blow on Pharaoh and the Egyptians. So that's what these plagues are all about. Now, Pharaoh might have been able to weather so to speak, the, the blood plague where the Nile was and the water was turned to, to blood, uh, who knows? He may have, because he's the, he's the king and he's the pharaoh, he may have had um, uh, you know, fruit juices to drink all week long or something like that, but he was able to weather that. And so now this, this new plague um, is what's going to rise. These frogs are going to come. There's going to be a mass of frogs, and they're going to rise up out of the Nile and enter into the living quarters uh, of the inhabitants of Egypt. Let's read again verse 3 and verse 4. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. That's pretty exhaustive. Now notice that they'll come into your house. Now friends, that is bad. I don't know if you've ever owned a home where you have had any infestation of certain animals or even certain insects. I remember my wife and I, uh, we were living in Buffalo, New York. I was in a uh, youth pastor in that, uh, at that time in that context. And I remember that uh, one of the mornings uh, we got up and came down to the kitchen to make coffee and there were carpenter ants all over the place. Now, carpenter ants are not small little ants. These are big, big monsters. I mean, they stop as they're walking in the kitchen, and they look at you and kind of turn their neck, and they're like, where's the food? Tell me where it is. I mean, they, these guys are tough. They're huge. And even when you swept them away, they're fighting against you. I mean, these guys were tough, and it was just overwhelming. And they were getting in through the water system and the back of the walls. They were everywhere. It was a horrible thing to have them. Our house was kind of turned upside down because of that. So you can imagine what's happening here in the, these Egyptian homes that are now full of frogs. But it continues on. It says they'll come into your bedroom. Well, it's one thing to be in the kitchen. It's another thing to be in your bedroom. And then it says it'll come into your beds. Yikes. I mean, can you imagine rolling over in bed uh, only to find that you're not hugging your wife, but you're hugging 20 frogs instead? And we must understand that their beds were not the kind of beds that we're used to. You know, the soft pillow top beds that are sitting two feet above the floor. Their beds were typically mats that were on the floor. So these frogs would easily jump and get into those beds. So they're, they're just, they're everywhere. Can you, can you imagine trying to, to get along in your home when you're trying to sleep, when you're trying to, to just to, to get through the day? The presence of the frogs everywhere, sliming and likely squishing as you walked through your home. 
these smelly, slimy frogs everywhere, the stench of the frogs, and add to that the fact that they came out of the bloody Nile. And then the noise of frogs croaking through day and night. I mean, this would be horrible. I mean, this is not just, oh, we have a frog in our house. Isn't it cute? You know, and your children are just playing with the frog. That's not it. Your children want to running away because there's so many frogs. And every time you try and make bread for dinner, you're kneading the dough and a frog jumps in and gets into the dough. I mean, that's the picture. They're, they're, they're such a nuisance. Even when you're done with the dough, you put it in the oven to cook it. Ah, it's full of frogs. They're in your pantry. They're everywhere. In the toilets, in the refrigerator, in your milk, in your shoes, in your backpack, in your keypad, on your clothes. Everywhere you turn, there are frogs taking over. And as much as you try to sweep them up, they keep on coming from somewhere. And it's an incredibly inconvenient plague. It's a disgusting plague. It's a tiring plague. And it's incessant. And this might be where the expression, will you please stop frogging around, comes from. I don't know. Now, it's worth noting that Moses says specifically to Pharaoh, the frogs shall come up on you. This is now beginning to be personal. Frogs are no respecter of persons. They don't look around and say, oh, I'm going to go to the poorer side of town. No, they'll go wherever they want to go. It doesn't matter who it is. This plague was going to hit everyone. And friends, this is just important to see, that God is revealing his power, in particular, over Pharaoh. But not only that, God is revealing his power over Egypt's gods. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. Now there is, there is a, a god, an Egyptian god with little g, that is known as Hecht. And she was the god who appeared in human form, but with a frog head. And she was the, the goddess of childbirth and abundance and fruitfulness. And the Egyptians relied on Hecht for two things. They relied on Hecht for, first of all, the, the frog population um, by controlling the crocodiles. So she had this ability to control the crocodiles who would then keep the frogs in check. And then, secondly, to assist women in childbirth. So the pregnant Egyptian woman typically would wear a frog amulet for protection during ch childbirth. Now, just remember, back in those days, there were a lot of women who actually died in childbirth, as well as children who died in childbirth. So, so this, this whole uh, process of going through, through birth was certainly a dangerous thing. And certainly they were relying on their God to get them through. And so here God is saying to Pharaoh and the Egyptians, you like your gods? You want to worship your gods? I'll give you gods in abundance. The frogs came up and covered the land, it says. I mean, they were everywhere. And what's rather humorous in this account is that since Hecht 
was a God embodied in the frog, the frog was sacred. And the Egyptians could not kill them. But the frogs were everywhere. And we can only assume that the Egyptians who are horrified now because there's so many frogs and you can't help but squish one or two here or there, now they're killing their gods, so to speak, because of the overabundance of their gods. It's almost like, imagine India was overrun with the plague of cows, but they're not able to do anything about it because cows are sacred. Well, here in Egypt, they couldn't do anything about these frogs except to gather them up and sweep them up somehow to remove them. And so that's just what they were doing, just constantly trying to get rid of them, but they couldn't because they constantly came back. Now, friends, because of God's judgment, the Egyptians were forced to loathe the symbols of their pagan worship. I don't think they were running around saying, oh, this is great, we just love frogs. No, I think they got to the point they were like, get rid of these frogs. We don't want frogs anymore. And you can imagine that when they died, the stink must have been awful. So God's power is revealed over Pharaoh and over Egypt's gods, in particular, the god Hecht. Secondly, we notice here God's sovereignty is evident. Along come the magicians. The magicians had been successful in imitating what had been done at the Nile, and now they are going to, with their secret arts, successfully produce frogs coming up out of the, uh, upon, out of the Nile upon the land of Egypt. And certainly they're imitating, but they're not necessarily stopping the frogs. They're, they're only adding to the problem, right? And you would expect that if they were going to be showing their power, that they would undo what God had done in his plague on them. God is sovereign even over them. But he's also sovereign over Pharaoh. I want you to notice what we find in this text. It's very, very intriguing, and I think it's powerful the way God demonstrates his sovereignty over Pharaoh. It says in verse 8, Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people. You can almost hear just the, just the fact that he's tired of this, right? Plead with the Lord. And I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. I've had enough of frogs. This frog thing, okay, you've got my attention can you please talk to your God and have him get rid of them? He certainly is desperate, and desperate times call for desperate measures, don't they? And notice that Pharaoh addresses the God of Israel by his true title. Notice in the text there it says, Plead with the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. That's Yahweh. You might remember that in his first encounter with Moses, Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. But now Pharaoh is coming to Moses saying, Plead with the Lord. Go by means of prayer and petition to the Lord. Remove my suffering. Take away the frogs. Give me and my people relief. 
And friends, by making this request for intercessory prayer, Pharaoh was admitting that the Lord God of Israel had power over all creation. So in his desperate moment, he is expressing that to Moses and Aaron. And the implication then in this text is that if your God takes away the frogs, I will let the people go to sacrifice the Lord. Now, what Moses says to Pharaoh is extremely important. Again, notice this. He agrees to plead for Pharaoh and his people, but he allows Pharaoh to determine the timing of when God would stop the plague and that the frogs would go back into the Nile. We find that in verse 9. Notice what it says here. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I'm going to plead for you and for your servants, for your people, that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And what does Pharaoh say? He chooses a time and he chooses tomorrow. Now, I would like to imagine Pharaoh in his palace talking to Moses and Aaron and his wife hearing the whole encounter. And as Moses and Aaron leave, she goes up to Pharaoh and says, Tomorrow? What about now? You mean I have a whole another night that I have to sleep with the frogs everywhere in this household? Why did you say tomorrow? Why not immediately? I don't want to spend another night squishing around with frogs. What were you thinking? It is kind of interesting, isn't it? But the point here, and I hope you see the point, is that not only is God sovereign in bringing the plague, but he's also sovereign in ending the plague according to Pharaoh's timing request. My friends, that's powerful. And God here is on display, isn't he? And notice what we're told here, the reason why Moses is giving Pharaoh the freedom to choose the time, that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Again, friends, it's worth remembering that God has a very specific purpose for raising Pharaoh up and for the hardness of his heart. He wants to be known as that unique God. There is none like me, he says. There is no one who compares. And with a specific answer from Pharaoh, we have a specific response from God through Moses, verse 12, so Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. That's a pretty powerful encounter, isn't it? Now notice, as we continue on, we've seen God's power, we've seen God's sovereignty, but now we're going to see God's grace. We read now in verse 13, and the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. God brought judgment on Pharaoh and the Egyptians, but God also loves to be gracious. And he provides relief, respite from the plague for Pharaoh and for the Egyptians. The frogs either die on the land or they go back into the Nile, we're told. But even in this reprieve the consequences or the effects of the plague still remain. The frogs died in their homes, in the courtyards, in the fields, and there's so many of them 
that all that the Egyptians could do was to gather them in heaps, and we're told that they stank. And friends, it's a reminder of chapter 15, sorry, chapter 5, I should say. After Moses and Aaron had gone to Pharaoh the first time, if you remember, Pharaoh responds by becoming harsher in his dealings with the Israelite people. And he forces them under these taskmasters to make bricks without straw. And the, the, the foremen come to Moses, complaining to Moses. And this is what they say, The Lord, look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants. But now through this plague, the stink is all around the Egyptians. The land of Egypt stinks because of God's judgment through this plague of the frogs. Now notice we move from grace to Pharaoh's hard heart. You would expect that when someone asks for prayer, that prayer is answered at the timing and in the way that God said he would do it. They would respond by saying, wow, this God is incredible. I should worship him. But instead of that, we're told here that when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Aha, here's what we have it. This is the classic, God, if you get me out of this mess, I will do X, Y, Z. And of course, when God gets you out of this mess, you just like forget about your commitment, your promise to God, and you go on your merry, wicked way doing what you want to do, forgetting about the fact that God was there to help you by His grace. Friends, it's a dangerous thing to make promises to God and then to pull the plug on those promises, especially when they are promises that you don't intend on keeping. Oh, this is the frogs. This is the plague of the frogs. Let's move on to the plague of the gnats. And here again, we, we're seeing that the gnats are coming up out of the dust of the ground. And so there's an emphasis here now about the soil, about the land. I want you to notice again, God's power is revealed. And it's, it's, it's worth us noting here that the first two plagues so far have taken place after a warning. But this plague, there is no warning. In fact, if you remember, in the rhythm of the ten plagues, there are three sets of plagues, and in each of those three sets, there is an order. The first plague, uh, first encounter happens in the morning. The second one happens in the palace. And for the third one, there is no warning. It happens at God's discretion. And so this is what we have now is this third plague in the first set of plagues. And let's read verse 16 um, and 17. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. Now, friends, we've already seen that God is carefully designing these plagues to take on the gods, little g, of Egypt one by one. 
In the first plague, the blood plague, God demonstrates his authority and power over Hopi, Knum, and Osiris, the gods of the Nile. We just saw the second plague where God demonstrates his authority and power over Hecate, the frog-headed god of fertility. Now with this third plague, it would appear that God is seeking to humiliate the earth god, Geb, by striking the dust of the earth and creating gnats. So there's this, there's this god that God is focusing on here. And God had revealed his power over the Nile. He's revealed his power over the water. And now he's revealing his power over the very soil of Egypt. Now, I don't know about you, but I hate gnats. I don't think there's anyone in this world that actually enjoys gnats unless they're studying gnats for some crazy reason. But uh, when I lived in Michigan, um, uh, we didn't have too many amusement parks near us, and we would have to travel to Sandusky, Ohio to go to an amusement park called Cedar Point. It was about a four-hour drive, four-and-a-half-hour drive, and so you're waking up early in the morning. You're staying as long as you can because it's another four-and-a-half-hour drive back, and uh, we would take our youth group there. And I remember one time we were there. It was in the middle of the summer, and uh, it was about an hour left before the 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 theme park closed down and we were like, all right, let's go ride that one roller coaster. Um, and I can't remember what it was called, but it was like the highest and the fastest at that point in time in history. And it was at the back of the park. Like, okay, let's go. And as we made our way to the back of the park, you have to understand this is, uh, this is a theme park that is, that is on one of the, the, the lakes, the Great Lakes there. So it's right there looking over the lake. It's a beautiful location. And as we get to the back of this, we could kind of feel like these, these kind of gatherings of gnats kind of in the air, and we're thinking, okay, this is typical. It's a little late at night, but they're, they're kind of in their own little pockets, you know what I'm talking about. You can see that sometimes where they're gnats just kind of flying together in groups. And then we finally make our way into the, uh, into the roller coaster, and we get on the roller coaster, and we start going out, you know, with the clickety-click, and you start making your way up the hill, and then it hit us. There were just swarms of gnats and mayfly that had just hatched that evening and were now flying all over the place. And here we were stuck in this roller coaster and literally these gnats were getting in our ears. The mayflies were flying around and our eyes were closed. Our mouths were shut. We, you know, you're holding your nose and you, you only have enough things you can do with your hands. It was horrible. And that wasn't the worst part of it. That was simply going up, you know, clickety, 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 clickety. And all these bugs are now getting all over the place. And if you had a short sleeve shirt on, they're getting up into your armpits and down your shirt and all this kind of stuff. And you just came to ride this roller coaster. And we finally get to the top and you're thinking, okay, great. Maybe with the, maybe with the speed we're going, the gnats are just going to disappear. We can enjoy the ride. Oh, friends, that didn't happen. When we started to get our speed going, it was worse. Now we were getting attacked by these bugs, and our faces were covered with them. Literally, they were splatting on our faces, and we're covering our heads because there was bugs all the way through. All we wanted to do was for the ride to stop and to get off and to find some place where we could breathe because the air was so full of bugs. Friends, that is an experience I don't ever want to have to go through again. And quite frankly, um, I'm a little afraid and traumatized about going to Cedar Point um, ever again. This is the kind of thing that we're seeing now in this text. 
This is, this is horrible. This is disgusting. This is beyond a nuisance. This is misery. This is gagging. So you can understand what God is doing here, can't you? He's saying, Pharaoh, if you think the frogs were bad, here are some gnats for you to enjoy. Have fun. Boom. Now, the reality is, scholars and historians and entomologists suggest that what we call here as gnats in the ESV are either more likely lice, which is how the King James translates it, or they are mosquitoes. Now, we have this kind of hatred for anything having to do with infestation of lice. We understand that. And all of you can stop scratching your head right now as we're talking, okay? Because I know, you start talking about these things, you feel itches all over your body. And we also hate the, the buzzy sound of mosquitoes, don't we? Now, quite frankly, here in the Bay Area, mosquitoes are not really that big of a deal. Um, having lived in Michigan for uh, a number of years, um, you may not know this, but the mosquito is the state bird, okay? Um, and uh, it's a... It's a uh, obviously, you know, I'm joking, but it's the truth of the matter, right? Um, there, there's no reason in Michigan to have a deck or a patio because as dusk comes, then on the horizon, we see the mosquitoes rising up like zombies to feed on human flesh. That's what it's like to live in Michigan and to be outside just at dusk and even into night. You will get eaten alive. And if you had a deck, then you probably had a bug zapper and you just sat back there trying to enjoy yourself and all you heard was zap, 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 right? We hate these kinds of bugs. They're horrible. They're a nuisance. And friends, this is what we have here is some kind of insect, gnats, lice, mosquitoes like that, have now been unleashed on the Egyptian people. And it's a direct challenge against their god, little G, Geb, the god of the guard of the soil, the god of the dust. Now, another thing that I think is helpful to get a picture of how God is using this is that this was a, a dreadful plague also for the priests of Egypt. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. When you think of an Egyptian priest, what one characteristic comes to mind? I'll give you a second to think about it. They're bald. You've probably seen them. They're bald and they wear white, bright white linen. Why? Because the priests had to shave their whole body every day. They weren't allowed to have, because they weren't allowed to have bugs that were actually living on them or covering them because that was a sign of impurity for their religious system. So now God comes attacking the god Geb but also now is attacking this, uh, this ritualism, this religious ritualism, because the priests had to bathe twice a day and make sure that they were clean in order to do the, do the things that they were supposed to do in their religious system. So friends, God's power is revealed, and it's revealed to one of Egypt's gods as well as to the priests. But I also want you to notice that in verse 18 that God's sovereignty evident once again. It says the magicians tried their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could 
not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, is the finger of God. You can just see the progression here. The magicians once were imitating what Moses and Aaron were doing. It started with a serpent. If you remember, the serpent swallowed the serpents of the Egyptian magicians. They, they did it with the blood, but they didn't stop the, 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 the Nile turning to blood. They just added to it. And then we saw with the frogs, they, again, they, they added the frogs. So some way they were able with their, their satanic and, 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 and arts, they were able to imitate. But now they've kind of come to the end of their rope. I shouldn't say kind of, they have. And they can't reproduce these gnats. And, and it's not reproduction you want here. You want relief from this. But ultimately, they recognize something significant is going on here. By giving now some glory to God, they say, this is the finger of God. Now, certainly they did not arrive at genuine saving faith but they at least recognized that something about the Israelites' God was at work here and was beyond their capabilities of matching. Now, notice again, they talk about the finger of God. It is not the Lord, L-O-R-D in capitals. This is God, this is Elohim. So they're, they're simply thinking generally about the God of Israel, not specifically about the covenant God that is supposed to be on display for all to see. Let me take you back to chapter 7 and verse 5 where we read um, the stated entire reason for the Exodus. Exodus 7, verse 5, And the Egyptians will know, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. So they acknowledged the God of Israel in general, but did not bow down and worship Him specifically as Yahweh. Now, yes, we must see the finger of God in his sovereignty over these plagues, but friends, that is still not enough. We must be like Buzz Lightyear, who famously said, to infinity and beyond. In other words, it's one thing to see God generally, but God wants us to push through and see him specifically. That is who he is on display, not just a God who is powerful, but a God who is the I am. That's where he's going. It's not enough to say, I believe in God. That won't save us. That won't save anyone. There are lots of people who believe in God. We must believe in the I am. He is the one who creates and sustains. He is the one who redeems and reconciles. Similarly, it's not enough to say Jesus was a good prophet or that he did many good deeds and set a great example for us as to how we are to live. Believing all of those things may be good, but it is not enough. It's not sufficient. That is not the gospel. Jesus isn't simply a good example, and he certainly isn't just a good prophet. He is the I am, and in being the I am, he took upon himself the role of a servant, went to a cross, and died in our place. He came to set the captives free. He didn't jump on the scene and say, look at me, follow my example. He came to say, I've got to go to Jerusalem, and there I'm going to be arrested, and I'm going to be beaten, and I'm going to be scorned, and I'm going to be crucified. But three days later, I will rise from the tomb. 
we are all very aware of what we find written in the book of James, chapter 2 and verse 21, where it says, even the demons believe and shudder. They don't believe and bow down. They shudder at the power and majesty of God, but they're not worshiping Him. Simply be believing about God won't save anyone, only coming to Him by faith, believing what He has said and holding fast to what He has done on the cross will bring about your salvation. Now let's think a little bit more about the finger of God here. Because this is not the only time where this expression is used in Scripture. We have a number of places where that is true. And I would draw your attention, first of all, to later in the story, Exodus chapter 31 and verse 18. This is when Moses is up on the mountain and God is giving him the law. And notice what it says here. And he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on the Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. There is something specific and unique and powerful and majestic about God's use of his finger to accomplish his purposes. I would draw your attention, secondly, to um, Psalm 8.3. This is David speaking, and he says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. Here's God's creative work in fashioning and shaping and creating all of his creation, men, women, earth, sky, all that stuff. David recognized that as part of the act of the finger of God. Of course, this is an anthropomorphism. This is an opportunity for, for God to communicate to us using human terminology about His mighty hand and His power and His strength and His sovereignty overall. In fact, we could think about the finger of God in your life. Many people, and I would say including yourself, have seen the fingerprints of God touching your lives in many ways, whether that's an answer to prayer, whether that's the, the meeting of a timely need, whether that's the restoring of a relationship or the granting of forgiveness or, or a sinner being converted. These are all ways in which the finger of God is at work among His people. But I would also draw your attention to the New Testament, to the finger of God in the teaching of Christ. You might want to turn to Luke 11, where Jesus has driven a demon out of a man who's mute. And here is what it says. This is Luke 11, beginning at verse 14. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Other tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. And Jesus responds, that very famous statement, if you remember, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And what he's saying is, you can't have God and Satan working together to accomplish their purposes. It's either Satan or it's God. And Jesus certainly wasn't driving the demons by the power of Beelzebub, but by his own power. And so he explains now in chapter 11 and verse 20, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. What is he saying? He's flashing back language from the Old Testament, identifying what he's doing as the mighty act and power of God. He's saying, look, all I have to do to defeat Satan 
is to raise my finger. So we have here, once again, a demonstration of God's all-powerful sovereignty. The make-believe gods of Egypt are nothing. They have no power. They can do nothing against the true God of Israel. And now we draw our attention finally once again. After all of this, after God's power being relieved, after God's sovereignty is, is made evident, Pharaoh won't listen to God or even God's representatives, and he won't even listen to his magicians who are described in chapter 7 and verse 11 as his wise men and sorcerers. In other words, his cabinet and counselors, they're coming around him saying, Hey, Pharaoh, this can only be the finger of God. And Pharaoh, we're told, his heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now, I want to draw some conclusions from our time this morning in these two plagues and think through the kinds of things that we've been dealing with. And I, I have just kind of five concluding thoughts to challenge us, to encourage us, to help us think through how God is at work. First of all, I want to draw your attention to this. God's judgments aren't always deadly, but they can certainly be unpleasant and extremely inconvenient. Yesterday, I finally got into my yard to start to deal with all the weeds that have surfaced. And I was reminded that these weeds are the judgment of God. They're here as a result of the fall. In fact, you can read in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 17 and following this. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it uh, of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. Thorns and thistles, thank you, Adam, that every spring I have to go out and pull weeds and spray chemicals, and later in the summer I have to do it again because they keep on coming up. This is all part of God's judgment. To live with these things is all part of God's judgment. Now, Scripture talks about many ways that God brings judgment on people because of their sin, because of their disobedience or even their rebellion. It can be sickness, it can be injury, it can be financial loss, uh, it can be pestilence, it can be wind, it can be earthquakes, it can be fire, it can be floods and accidents, it, and we can go on. And although in Scripture we might find a direct connection to a specific judgment because of a specific sin, we must be careful, friends, about connecting dots where we have no business of connecting dots. We're not given the right to say that XYZ judgment has been the cause, has been caused by XYZ sin. Certainly, if there is no dot to connect, we can't just jump and make a leap and make an argument that isn't there. We must all be introspective and be willing to honestly ask the question: in this suffering, in this judgment, in this, this time of affliction, what is God seeking to teach me through this crisis? Is there any sin that I need to repent of? Is there any attitude that I have been 
harboring in my heart that needs to be put off. We must not play God and attribute to XYZ group or individuals responsibility for bringing the suffering that we are experiencing. And friends, as you know, you just look on the media, that is happening today. And we must be very careful that we do not do that. History is full of societies targeting um, uh, as, as scapegoats, individuals or ethnic groups as being the cause or the root of what appears to be God's judgment. Nero, if you remember, falsely accused uh, the Christians of setting fire, uh, setting Rome on fire. And as a result of that, there was this vicious and deathly persecution placed on them. On so many occasions, the Jews have been targeted as the source of the reason for a sickness or a perceived judgment of God when the plague was going through, uh, through Europe. Uh, people wanted answers. People wanted to blame someone, and they turned their vicious hearts against the Jews. They couldn't connect the dots, but, hey, it must be the Jews because they put him on the cross. Therefore, they're the ones who are causing this, and it just caused so much persecution and death. And sadly, such attitudes are still present in our modern, sophisticated society where politicians and media stir people up in a frenzy to hate certain ethnic, religious, or people groups. And this happens on both sides of the aisles, so I'm not trying to be political here, whether it's Muslims or Christians or Mexicans or Middle Easterners. African Americans or Anglos or the 1% or the environmentalists or the, the moral majority or the LGBTQ crowd. Friends, we all need to look within and humble ourselves before the true sovereign of the universe and ask ourselves, how have we been guilty of falling short of his glory? And certainly it is true that ungodliness brings about judgment. Joseph Stalin did react to the Ukrainian farmers with a forced hunger that killed about 12 million people. Hitler did seek to eradicate the Jews, pure evil in both situations. People groups have been conquered and taken as slaves throughout the world from all different kinds of ethnic groups through the history of the world. There are true evils that are done by mankind throughout history and throughout the world and there's a cry for justice that God hears and that God will ultimately bring about. But friends, our answer to God's judgment, because we're not the government, we're the church, our answer to God's judgment is not condemnation, but gospel clarity. People need to know that they're already condemned not because of sins that they have committed, but because their natural sinful condition before God is that they are sinners without hope except for the gospel. They're born with a heart, a rebellion against God, which condemns them. And it is to this sinful nature that the gospel comes in order to set us free and to reconcile us to God. My friends, we must be really, really careful about how we process through this. We must leave judgment up to God. And yes, God has ordained governments to establish, implement, and uphold laws. Laws that are for the good of the people. And unless they clearly violate Scripture, we must seek to live respectfully under their rule and appreciate their imperfect and sinfully flawed 
methods because if you were in their position, your exercise and your methods would also be sinfully flawed. It is true, innocent people do go to jail. It is true, corruption can and will be present in all three branches of the government. It is true, guilty people are set free. That is the reality of sin being present in the heart of people and living in a sin-cursed world. But we must step back a bit and ask ourselves a question or two or three. Who is the true judge? Who is the perfect judge? Who will carry out perfect justice and execute perfect judgment? It is God. And sometimes when we have no control, we have to leave it to Him. Secondly, having considered God's judgments, that they're not always deadly, I want us to also focus on the fact that common grace is a beautiful thing. <laughs> what is common grace? Common grace is when God is kind, He's merciful to the just and the unjust. He, he showers uh, both believers and unbelievers with His goodness. He's a gracious God. And he, if you notice in the text here, when, when Pharaoh comes to God and he, he, he's asking Moses and Aaron to plead for him, he's not asking for forgiveness of anything. There's no humility that's expressed. He is simply coming to say, would you please relieve me from the suffering I'm going through? And if you do this, I will let the people go. Still, God, knowing that he wouldn't let the people go, brings relief, brings respite to Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. That is, that is a kindness, friends. And common grace is a kindness. When we're short of water and God comes with a cloud over the Bay Area, he's not just picking out the Christian homes and targeting the rain in those homes. He's showering rain on all of those homes. When there's a sickness like we're going through right now, this pandemic, and we don't know how, what the answer is, and let's just say that there is a, a solution to that. There's some kind of a vaccine or some way that, that this virus can be stopped. It's not just to be given to those who are his followers. It's something that's given to mankind as a whole. His, his kindness and his grace can be common in that sense, and it's a beautiful thing. Because God showers His grace on those who do not deserve it. And yet He still gives it in that kind of common way. Now friends, can you imagine without common grace, this world would be a living hell. Suffering would be rampant. God's hand of care and kindness would be only on those who are His. And so common grace is also a means by which unbelievers are processing through the truth of the gospel. Remember that. Third, idolatry is not just an ancient problem. It's a very present reality. We make things idols when, we consume, when they consume us or cause us to sin. And even today, Christians can be guilty of bowing down in desperation in particular, to the frog-headed God of fertility. The scriptures tell us that God created Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to 
multiply and fill the earth. And so as couples get married, one of the things that they're naturally wanting to do is be thinking about starting a family as God would have them start a family. And in some situations, God does not allow a child to be born, doesn't allow the conception to take place. And it's all part of His wisdom, it's part of His purposes. And yet there are those who who are struggling with what God has chosen for them, and in their struggle, in their thoughts of not being completely a woman, not being completely a man, or not being a complete uh, unit because there are no children, they can find in their desperation a desire to bow down to a God of fertility that comes through medicine and doctors and things like that. And rather than trusting the Lord, they might place themselves in situations where ethics are being questioned. Now, I'm certainly okay with people trying to figure out ways where um, there, can, there can be um, a birth, where a child can be conceived. I've counseled a number of couples who haven't been able to conceive, and yet over time God has blessed them, or some He hasn't. But here's the issue, is that something good, some desire that is God-given, can end up being an idol that you worship, and because you are now worshiping it, you are allowing yourself to go down a path of ethics that you would never typically go down, except you are struggling with this one issue. And friends, we, we must be mindful to just to, to, to love on couples that we are aware of who are going through this kind of trial. And it's especially hard when you know that the abortion rate is so ridiculous, and abandoned children um, are, are around and there are those who are abused and you have a, a couple who wants to honor God with the birth of a child. These are difficult and delicate topics, friends. And if you know of a couple who are in the thick of the struggle, um, we need for them to know that we care for them and their struggle, that we hurt for their loss and their longing and that we're praying for them, for wisdom from God, for, for protection against the idol of of fruitfulness and for endurance because of their discouragement. It's so easy for idolatry to get a grip on us. It's not an ancient problem, friends. It's a very, very present problem. Number four, flowing out of this text again, <laughs> other people do suffer when we choose to rebel against God. Friends, because of Pharaoh's consistent and ongoing rebellion and hard-heartedness, the people of Egypt suffered. They were experiencing the plague. He could have said, yes, I'll let your people go. But he wouldn't. He wouldn't listen. He wouldn't follow through. And so they, were, they will continue to suffer. Israel also suffered. They were affected by these first few plagues. Pharaoh and his family suffered. His servants suffered. And ultimately, as we see in the 10th plague, his son would die. Now, some want to say, oh, I'm going to live my life how I want to live it, and I'm going to live it in rebellion against God, and it won't hurt anybody. But friends, that's a lie. It's a self-deception. It's a pipe dream. And unfortunately, you won't usually see the damage you're doing until years later. 
Friends, other people do suffer when you choose to rebel against God. You can try and convince yourself that that's not true. But we find from Scripture, and so many times in Scripture, that this is reinforced again and again and again. And then the last one. Those who are hard-hearted are not likely to be moved by the facts. They're not likely to be moved by their relief from suffering or the clear testimony of those around them. Right? Pharaoh asked for and received relief, but that didn't move his heart. The magicians gave testimony of God's power, but that didn't move his heart. Pharaoh experienced a powerful demonstration of the impotence of Egypt's God and his own personal power, but that doesn't move him. And friends, you, you cannot reason your way with a hard heart. Only God can prepare the soil for the seeds of the gospel to grow. Only God can break up the fallow ground for the heart so that it will receive the benefit of its truth. Now, you can still plead. You can still seek to persuade. And in that persuasion, you'll certainly use logic and reason, but the power is not in the logic and the reason. The power is in God. And that is why what we ultimately need to do, just like Moses did, is we need to pray. We need to pray for that heart to be soft and ready for the gospel. It is God's work and His alone. Friends, we have spent time this morning wrestling, thinking through these two plays. And I trust that as we've moved along so far, you are seeing God in a greater way, revealing Himself as not just superior to these gods. He's saying these gods don't even exist. They have no power. I am the one unique God. I am the one who is to be known. I am Yahweh the Lord. Bow down and worship me. Come out to the wilderness and worship me. That's what he's saying he wants his people to do, is to come and worship him. And yes, we can talk about all the gods of Egypt and all that kind of stuff. It's helpful. We understand what God's doing here. But ultimately, He wants us who are reading this to see Him in His might, in His glory, in His sovereignty, that we would come and we would worship Him for who He is. Will you do that today? Lord, help us as we wrestle with these things to see you afresh and to bow down before you to glorify your name for who you are. May we not be intimidated by the gods, little g, of this world. Oh Lord, they are powerful. They are strong. They are popular. And yet, Lord, in your eyes, they are nothing. Help us, Lord, to keep our focus where it needs to be and find our strength in you, the I am, the one who sustains, the one who creates, the one who comes as our Savior to die on the cross for our sins. You are worthy of our worship. And Lord, we give it to you now. In your precious name, amen.